0: ASEP 20 is just around the corner. The world's largest emergency medicine conference will be held this year on October 26th through October 29th. Hear from leaders in the field, earn on-demand CME hours, interact with simulation labs and demos, network and socialize, and so much more. You can register for this must-attend virtual event at www.asap.org forward slash ASEP 20.
1: stanton here with a frontline and today we have a special follow-up episode and rarely do i get the juggernauts of emergency medicine education and knowledge like i have obtained today this my friends if you are turning in you have tuning in you have caught one of the uh, most prestigious episodes ever and it has nothing to do with me Um, So I've got with me Dr. Ken Milne and Dr. Jerry Hoffman, two of the greats and have been on the podcast in the past. And what we are talking about today is actually uh, the subject that Dr. Milne and I talked about just a couple of weeks ago uh, in recording chronologic order, uh, which is the adjustments and the reassessment of the uh, research on TPA with regard to ischemic stroke. And uh, I've got a response from Dr. Hoffman about that and so i said you know what if i can have an excuse to get them both back on the podcast especially since dr hoffman and i usually uh, record at uh, the uh, scientific assembly uh, so it would have been done at ASEP 20 this year well it's virtual And uh, make sure you sign up for that. But I wasn't going to get a chance to see him live this year. So uh, use that as an excuse to uh, get him on the show as well. So I appreciate both of them joining us. And I'm just going to start off by letting Dr. Milne kind of summarize where we were with the last episode uh, of the podcast with the reassessment of the research.
0: Well, thank you very much, Ryan, for having me back on the program. If I wanted to give you a recap It would be that ECAS-3 has just been reanalyzed this year, and when it was reanalyzed, the efficacy claimed in ECAS-3 of TPA over placebo disappeared. So they couldn't actually demonstrate a superiority, a statistical difference between giving TPA three to four and a half hours after onset of symptoms compared to placebo, except they did confirm harm. Now, when they reanalyzed ECAS3, that was one of 13 randomized control trials on Lytics. There were only two that claimed a superiority or a positive statistical difference. One was ECAS3 that was just reanalyzed, and one was NINS. That was the 1995 article that was reanalyzed by Dr. Hoffman himself that also. Um, failed to demonstrate a superiority of TPA, but that was in the under three hour window. So to summarize, we now have zero randomized control trials showing superiority of lytics over placebo for patients with acute ischemic stroke. And that's what we talked about last time.
1: And what I liked from that is, and what we want to drive home is that it's it, that nothing in this is saying that there may not be a role and as you mentioned the patient oriented outcomes and the burden of proof that it is not there for this for the application of which we are discussing right now just like um, when we were uh, debating at one point uh, mechanical thrombectomy and those types of things um, you know they found found the niche uh, eventually that that it had some that it's going to have benefit in those uh larger large vessel occlusions but um so as you mentioned, we've got all these studies, none of which shows superiority to uh, standard uh, standard care or whatnot uh, thus far. And so Dr. Hoffman, as you mentioned, his role already in reevaluating uh, the studies. Uh, but responded very quickly. We've had a lot of action, discussion. You've been very busy with this discussion on social media uh, on where we go from now. And so Dr. Hoffman, you reached out to us right afterwards and you had a a nice, well uh, put together email and and discussion that has has proven to actually promote further discussion with those that were linked into that. Uh, Give us an idea of, of that response and your thoughts when you heard that podcast with Dr. Milne.
2: Hi. So, first of all, thanks for having me, Ryan. And it's a pleasure to be on with both of you. Um, let me make it clear: I listened to your guys' podcast, and I thought it was excellent. And so, I I don't want anyone to think that I, uh, I my response was to say, "Oh no, that's wrong." Uh, I thought you guys were great, uh, as as expected, um, and I agreed with the vast majority of what you said. Ken is an old friend of mine. I've known him for a long time, and we've spent a lot of time talking to, with each other. So I felt that allows me to say yeah but you know I have a couple of little nits to pick with you that I areas where I think you know we don't exactly agree and you know if I didn't feel comfortable uh with Ken I would I wouldn't have done that but I did and I responded both to both of you as well as to a few other people who were on the email thread about the podcast and I said I have two little um Two little areas where I I'm not sure I agree. Uh, actually, I'm sure I don't agree. And uh, one of those was um, I was very struck by the statements that uh, sort of in proximity with each other. The one statement was now we have zero out of thirteen showing benefit, and then the second statement that followed fairly quickly was that's not to say it it doesn't work. It's just to say we don't have proof that it works. And you know one of the things I've been doing for a long time is studying how science works. And uh, without being pompous, the philosophy of science. And one, of you know, in, in philosophy of science, you try to learn what do we know and what can you say and when can you get to a definitive statement? And there are very few things where you can actually make a definitive statement. We've proved X or we've proved not X. You can disprove never. Uh, there are a few things you can get to. But um, for the most part, what we're trying to do and what we do in medical research is we try to change the prior probability, where you stood before you did the study, to where we now stand after you've done the study. And so while I don't think you can ever get to a point of saying it would never work in anybody, you can get to a point where you say more than just, it's not proven. I think you can get to a point where you say the chance, we've now narrowed, we went from a 50% chance, equipoise, before we did any studies, to now we've moved so far in one direction that the likelihood of benefit is exquisitely small. And small enough that I would say, absent remarkable other information, we should say, it. We, we know the answer. And so when you say there are 13 studies, zero of which show benefit, I think that's pretty strong evidence that it doesn't work. Now, that's not to say it couldn't ever work in a, in a some subgroup. Um, and that's the second area where you guys reached a conclusion that I would uh, state differently. Of course, it could work in a subgroup, but I think the chance of that being true is small. And until we have evidence of it, we it's okay to acknowledge, yes, it is a theoretical possibility, but we shouldn't be really spending a lot of time speculating about which subgroup it will work in, since it's never been shown to work. And I'll just finish now by just saying, I'm going to give a, a sort of a crazy metaphor, an extreme metaphor, but, it's, but I think it, it, it is relevant. So imagine you threw an a, atomic bomb on a city, and you killed a lot of people but then you found out that people who were 300 miles away and had cancer, it helped with their cancer because it was just enough radiation, it's just enough time and the right distance. It, that's possible, but you wouldn't go speculating that until you had evidence of it. If we have 13 studies that it doesn't work, we have no evidence of any subgroup in which it does work. If somebody comes up with a hypothesis because of physiologic reasoning. And then they does do a, an initial study, an exploratory study, which seems to suggest that if you have the right lesion and the right time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it would work, that would be hypothesis generating. And even then, you'd still have to do a specific large study to prove it. At this point, so I guess the final thing I'll say is, at this point, I think the chance of this working is so small the confidence intervals uh, for which this would be successful, the the likelihood is so small that I would say at this point we have to conclude it doesn't work. And two, we're not even at a place where we should be talking about uh, about subgroups unless there's some evidence that would start to qualify as hypothesis generating. And even that isn't proof, that would just be now we should start to think about it and start to test it.
1: So it sounds like the the thought is that uh, Dr. Millen and I were, were kind of in the the camp of we didn't. It's it's like a friend that doesn't really fit, um, and but we didn't want to hurt its feelings, uh, hurt their feelings, and so we we're like, you know what, you don't act like this, you don't talk like us, you, we don't get along, you don't like the same things we do. We really would be better if we had never met, but we don't want to be. We don't want to hurt your feelings, and so that's kind of how we have been with tpa is we don't want to hurt tpa's feelings because honestly it has tried hard um it just doesn't mix with our friend group uh, dr Milne, your thoughts again i'm
2: just gonna i'm just gonna emphasize it's not like i disagreed with you it's just that, that you know i i would stress it a little bit differently than you guys did for the reason you just said
1: dr Milne, your retort
0: well i i of course um learned from my mentor and always appreciate his constructive criticism. And when you're looking at the literature, people can look at the same literature and interpret it differently because we are looking at the exact same literature. So how do you interpret that literature? And you can take a stronger position, which Jerry is taking that, you know, in all probability, I think we can conclude it doesn't work. I'm taking a softer position on that it doesn't work by not claiming that it doesn't work, because that would shift the burden of proof. Then I would be open to criticism to say, listen, if you're saying it doesn't work, you go out and prove that it doesn't work. And I don't want to assume that burden of proof. And that's how science works. I and mean, Jerry brought up the philosophy of science. So if somebody's claiming it works, great, they can demonstrate it. If they haven't met that burden of proof, we can't say it doesn't work. That's not how science works. We accept the null hypothesis. And when you're talking about a physiologic reason, and I can't believe I'm arguing a pro position for TPA, but that's good. It's always good to consider um, something um, that you don't hold. So if you're on the pro side of TPA, and I don't like to think of it as sides, but the position would be those studies that were done were done with older technology, older imaging. And I don't think it's about time equals brain. I think it's about salvageable brain. And so if you have advanced imaging and you have a non-large vessel occlusion, I think that there is a hypothesis there to say, listen, in those patients where you have collateral flow, you have potential for salvageable brain, my question is, would TPA work in those patients? My answer is, I don't know. Let's test it. So let me ask you some questions,
2: uh, Ken. So if 0 of 13 are positive, 0 of 13, what would get you across the line to say, I think we've now heard enough to say, we never can say 100% sure, but here, the, the The confidence intervals for it being positive are so close, reach so close to zero that we're going to say it's it's zero. Is it a
0: a zero out of 20 studies, zero out of 50 studies? How many studies would you need? Well, that's not my uh, problem. My problem is you haven't convinced me. If you want to convince me, do a study that actually has good convincing evidence and I will reject the null and accept the superiority. Until then, I accept the null. Hold on a second, so why would you
2: why would you reject the null based on a study that found a, a p value or whatever you want to use, but don't um, reject the possibility that it's that it's positive when you have thirteen studies that say that but why why you know this uh, this is not uh, uh, my understanding of science is a little different than yours. My understanding of science is that you start with a prior probability and then you get to a posterior probability and you have that's within some confidence levels. You never know the exact place where you are, but you can say, this is our best point estimate and here's the confidence around which we have it. And if you keep repeating a study and you keep getting negative, you're gonna get more and more towards a zero chance of benefit and you're gonna narrow the confidence around your point estimate. At some point, you have—I mean, I think we live in the real world. You have to say the chance of this being positive is so small that I'm going to accept that it's not positive. In the same way that if you had one positive study, okay, but I'd still want a little more evidence. You have two positive studies, okay. Thirteen positive studies, I'd start to say yes. I'm rejecting the null hypothesis, even though. It's possible that if you did another 100 studies, it would be negative. In the same way, if you have 13 negative studies, why would you assume the next 100 are going to be positive? It's, I think you have to say, at this point, we, the, we can be extremely confident
0: that this doesn't work. I don't disagree that you can't be extremely confident that it doesn't work and that you can take that position. It just assumes a burden of proof then in any argument. And from an epistemology standpoint, if, if you want to make that claim, then it's up to you to demonstrate that. I've demonstrated it with our 13 studies that are negative. Right? I, I and and we're, you, we're, you, you said that that doesn't prove a negative, though. And, there's and no pro- way in possible to prove it. It well, is there impossible is there. to reach proof. And, and I, I was, that would introduce a nirvana fallacy of expecting 100%. I'm not expecting perfect evidence or complete, um, just sufficient evidence. Well, and then so at have, this point, I don't have sufficient evidence to accept the claim. Okay. But you, so again, I just ask
2: you, what would be sufficient? 13, zero out of 13 isn't sufficient? Is zero out of 50? Is zero out of
0: 3,000? What would be sufficient for you? Th- that's. Again, shifting the burden, what would be sufficient for me to accept that it doesn't work? Yeah Nirvana, you don't want it to be zero what percent. What percent
2: where would when could I convince Ken Mill that something is negative? Is it after 13 studies? Is it after 20 studies? After
0: No, thousand? so I've already accepted the null hypothesis of no superiority. right? I've already accepted the null. What I'm suggesting is that with advanced imaging. And help me out here with advanced imaging, advanced neuroimaging, and you've got salvageable brain because we didn't separate those patients from that. We cast them at really large. So if there is a group of people, just like you saw with EVT, there's a small group of people, right, within EVT that has potential benefit. Now, it has a huge denominator neglect there. So it's a huge number to capture the small number. But I can't say I don't know what that small number is, even if it exists, until it's tested. So, uh, so I I'm just I'm just leaving the door open to say, okay. All right. So I guess we're I guess we I don't want to be too sophistic. Yeah, to it's 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 a little bit pedantic of us.
2: And and, but I think we're confusing two different things. So again, I had two complaints. One was. Um, I'm saying it doesn't work, and you're saying you accept the null hypothesis. Well, those to me are the same thing. I don't know why you added from that. I'm not saying it doesn't work, because I think they're the same thing. But the second, and then then you said, well, yeah, there might be a subgroup in whom it works. I think that's a different thing. That's a different thing than saying, overall, it doesn't work. It doesn't work overall, I think. I think I have enough evidence now that I'm convinced it doesn't work overall. The second thing is you're now posing a new hypothesis, which is maybe it doesn't work overall, but maybe there's some patients in whom it does work. And I, 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 that's always true. It's always possible that there's some subgroup one could find. I made that ridiculous example of you, dropping an atomic bomb could be good for people 300 miles away who have cancer. It could be, but before we start talking about that, I think we need to have so, at least some evidence of it. And it's one thing to say, there's a theoretical reason to imagine that it might be true in the subgroup you said. There is a theoretical, but until we have some evidence, some preliminary evidence of that, I don't think we we should be spending a lot of time talking about it. It, it, it. Researchers maybe should, maybe they should say, somebody who's really interested in this should say, you know, that that sounds like a reasonable hypothesis. Let's do a hypothesis what would still con- I would still consider a hypothesis generating study because there's no evidence of it yet. So let's get some evidence that would that would actually generate the hypothesis in a meaningful way. And then, if indeed that turned out to be true, you could then do try to do a more definitive study to test that hypothesis. I think we're a long way away from starting to talk about, yes, but in that subgroup it, it, it might work. Anything's possible but there's no evidence of that so so at this point i would say it do- doesn't seem to work overall and barring some new evidence to the contrary we don't know of a subgroup in which it works
1: i think it's actually amazing that how what a great discussion we've had on two people who actually have the exact same position in terms of the role or lack thereof of tpa for ischemic stroke and what it kind of makes me think of it it, you know it's if you got a toolbox at your house and you have that one socket wrench that's just some oblong size just ridiculously crazy size and you may never ever ever have a functional use for it so it's basically a useless tool but you don't throw it away because you may at some point have that size that size bolt that you got to and you don't want to miss out And so instead of throwing out that tool and and going buying the tools that you need, you just keep that tool back there in the back of the shelf just in case. But the problem with TPA, well, with with thrombolysis, the problem we've got is that both of us here, two greats of emergency medicine, uh, two guys that just have fantastic ability to break down the research, reassess the data, see what the evidence truly says, says that this is not a beneficial treatment, and yet it is a treatment that is being continually pushed more and more and more in our emergency departments for longer times and with less information and faster on arrival. And so how do we, we have a dichotomy right now of failing, failing evidence that is still being propped up to promote something that is being pushed across the country and through our healthcare system. What do we do with this?
2: and so i love your analogy ryan but it's not exactly as you just pointed out it's not exactly correct because you said you have this tool that you're not using but you don't throw it away well we're using this tool and if you're using it and it's causing harm that's very different than saying okay before we get rid of we'll keep in the back of our mind we might someday discover a use for this that's very different than using it and we know that it causes increased hemorrhage. We are almost certain, in the same way uh, Ken and I could argue about whether there's proof that it increases mortality, there's certainly evidence that it increases mortality. We're we're using this, and that's very different than having the tool in the back of the tool shed.
0: I will go one step further and say it's more than just we've got a tool and we're using it we're being judged on whether or not we're using it. We're being, we've got these incentives to make sure that we do use it and and we will be shamed and blamed if we don't use it. So I think it's actually much stronger than, well, you've got a tool that you're not using or you've got a tool that's, yeah, it's being used. Oh, it is being get with the guidelines. If you're not with the guidelines, why aren't you with the guidelines? What's wrong with you? So I think there's even a stronger push to use that tool
1: and we're getting to the point now where we're seeing um, pushes to give it later and later and later and then um, you know on ones that were like yeah this doesn't even seem like an ischemic stroke well if it's not a stroke it's not a big deal it won't cause an issue because they can't bleed if they don't actually have a strokes and so it's relatively safe medication and you know even before this reanalysis you know, you had 11 of 13 now, then 12 of 13 and 13 of 13, you know, a, a, an ironic number of studies to have no benefit to having that lucky number 13 um, that we, we still get to push. So is it time and is, is this this sounds like a rhetorical, just ignorant question? Is it time that we push harder for a complete reset on the way we manage stroke care uh, within the United States, especially, but in much of the world?
2: It would be a little hard for me to push harder than I have been trying to push for the last 20 years. But, um, uh, you know, I I, I want (laughs) to, no, of course we should, there there should be a re, vision of a community practice about this, and you know I, I said twenty years ago when I first said i don 't think we have evidence for this i don 't think the evidence is convincing I, I said, you know probably twenty years from now people will start abandoning this because they 'll have something else to do, and that'll be more expensive and more more sexy and I think that 's probably going to come true. Um, you know, now with the studies of adding it to medical, uh, mechanical removal, uh, they're all showing negative, et cetera. Um, but, uh, you, you just made a, I, I want to talk about something else briefly. You just made the comment that people say, well, it can't hurt. And they actually cite papers saying that in mimics, it didn't cause bleeding, um, and I always suggest when I hear that, why don't the, the people who say that, why don't they just take a little of TPA for themselves and just just see whether it'll cause a brain hemorrhage or a massive GI bleed or something like that. In fact, there's clear evidence that you don't have to have a stroke to have a bleed. And the, the, the so-called evidence that it doesn't hurt you if you have a mimic is ridiculous. Why is it ridiculous? First of all, it's usually reports of 50 or 70 patients. And if you killed one out of 100, you might miss it in 70 patients. And in the other, all the groups where they found it, they wouldn't report that. The only ones who report it are the ones who are negative so that it looks good. But it's, there's a much more important and dangerous reason why these reports are completely wrong, which is if I gave it to 100 people who had a mimic, Or a thousand people, or however many they are, everyone who bled into their brain, I wouldn't die I would fail to diagnose that they were a mimic. Because I diagnosed they were a stroke, now there are a stroke. And I see bleeding, and I say, I'm not gonna go back and say, Oh, you know what? Maybe that wasn't a stroke in the first place. Maybe it was a migraine. I'm gonna say, of course they bled, you know, that's one of the things that happens, nothing you can do about it. It happens when you have a stroke, sometimes you get bleeding. So, so what we've done is remove the numerator. Every mimic who bleeds gets removed and therefore the numerator is magically zero. That's no evidence that you don't bleed when you're a mimic. And of course nobody in his right mind would give himself or herself tpa just because it's safe it's certainly not safe aspirin's not safe tpa is a lot less safe than
1: aspirin so dr hoffman are you saying that you don't do a tpa drip on long international plane flights just to keep from getting dvts (laughs) it's pretty safe otherwise dr Milne, your thought.
0: Well, I wanted to get back to your point about what can we do about this, because we have this new information. That's what the uh, paper of the reanalysis of ECAS-3 triggered, and they challenged readers to reconsider. So clinicians, policymakers, and patients to reconsider this therapy. And so that's what I'm trying to do is reconsider this therapy. I've approached our national organization in emergency medicine and our stroke committee, and I've joined that stroke committee, And that stroke committee has actually said, okay, yeah, that makes sense. We should. And we're going out to an independent group and asking for a reevaluation of the literature. That's one point. The second point is, you know, people have approached me and said, you know, Dr. Hoffman, I mean, what a legend of emergency medicine. If he can't change it, why do you think you can have this addressed? Ken, what, like you're just some Canadian doctor, like, come on. he He's a giant working in Southern California. He was there on the ground level. He's been writing about this since before Nins probably came out for like 25 years. And, I, and I've actually reflected on that since I saw the email exchange. And I'm thinking, yeah, am I full of hubris? And I'm like, no, I think it's because the world has changed. Back when Jerry was trying to really advocate for a much more rational approach to the evidence and expecting a much higher standard before we adopt something too quickly. What did you have? You had letters to the editor, emailed. I mean, when was my first email account? Like 1995, 1994, I think was the first email exchange right now we have social media and you mentioned that earlier. And that's where I think, we can really mobilize people and mobilize a community to say, listen, we all want patients to get the best care based on the best evidence. Now, can I reach those people instead of sending a letter to the editor and it taking six months to get published? Can I send out some tweets? Can I do a podcast on that? Can I do a blog on it? Can I do a, a, a meme or coming up soon? How about a TikTok video? Is that what is that what's going to penetrate and get that knowledge translation across to actually readdress this situation? And so the tool in my toolbox that Jerry didn't have was this powerful tool called social media. And I think that it can be used for great good. It's just how you use it.
1: We're actually seeing, and I believe that we are going to see a reassessment as, as I am seeing that we are, there's a huge wave pushing back, especially through emergency medicine. I think it's going to force and press the issue. I've always said in talks that it's harder, it's much, much harder to take out a practice or a medicine or something uh, than it is to just never have put it in to begin with. And so I think a lot of the push is to get something into practice because then it's near impossible uh, to get that uh, to get that practice out of practice. Um, and, and not to mention that now we, with this, um, you know, we're seeing uh, a change. Uh, we're seeing that wave. We're seeing a reassessment. But I also kind of uh, akin this to we have known for many, many years that spinal immobilization, the long backboards in trauma, um, are not of benefit and likely potential harm. But it took many, many years to get that push. And you still see a lot of resistance from it. And a lot of times it's because the specialty that is the end recipient, that case trauma, was a little bit behind in coming out with a statement that then allowed emergency medicine, the other areas to change. And the question is when we are going to see that that reassessment with the stroke, uh, stroke teams to say, this needs to be reassessed, this needs to be evaluated on whether is actually efficacious uh, or in this case, uh, potentially harm over benefit uh, for these patients and thus adjusting the way we completely do practice. Um, and and I'm hoping, and this is clearly right now seems to be an emergency medicine led uh, kind of um, reassessment uh, of the thrombolysis. Um, but I think it's going to take everybody coming on board and getting in the room and say, yeah, you know what? 13 of 13, uh, that 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 evidence it's right there, um, and it's right there for us to assess
2: so first of all, Ryan, you're exactly right. There's good literature evidence that uh, it's much harder to remove something from practice than to get it in that that's been studied, and you are absolutely right. Uh, second thing is that um, despite the limitations that uh, Ken mentioned uh, for many years now surveys of emergency physicians have consistently shown tremendous skepticism amongst emergency physicians about TPA. So uh, I don't think it's that people haven't been on board. Uh, I think people have felt enormous pressure to do, to give this drug, even though they personally weren't convinced that it works. And that's always a difficult position to be in, as Ken mentioned. If you didn't give it, you were at risk for having all sorts of bad things happen to you personally. And what's more, it was wasn't that hard to say. Well, I'll pass the buck down the line to the neurologist and let them do what they want to do. Uh, and I don't blame anybody for doing that. Uh, certainly, that you know that that's understandable. Um, but again, I don't think this is a new thing. I, I, I the skepticism about it. I am very delighted to have Ken have a blog and followers on his social media and all these things, and to use all these terms that I've never, you know, I have heard of TikTok, I have, TikTok. Tac, what is it, Tic Tac Toe. I, I don't know what any of these things are and I don't do any of them. Um, so I'm gonna leave that to you guys. Um, but I, I do think it takes more than a lot of us believing that it's wrong. You know, it's going to take a lot of us, (laughs) forget about TPA for a second, what about our world? There's so many things where people are very concerned these days about racial system, systemic racism. How do you change those things? Well, it's not enough for us all to, to think it's bad. We have to do something about it and doing something about it is more than being on social media, I think. So I don't know how we do this. Um, this is the big question that faces all of us right now. We're in a critical moment in, in our world, way beyond TPA, but for TPA as well, um, you know, I certainly wish you luck, Ken and Ryan, in, in what you're doing. And I love that you're doing this podcast, etc. but changing it is, is, is not that easy. And I will mention one last thing and I'll shut up, which is that, um, I have over the years received Several dozen letters from individual neurologists asking for my help saying, I'm being pressured to do this. What do I do? I got one last week. Um, that's not in the world of neurology, that's a small number, but I'm sure it's the tip of the iceberg. I'm sure there are a lot of neurologists who also feel very uncomfortable about this. And I, you know, I try to talk to them about what the evidence is and what they can do and how they can go forward, but it's not easy you know, we're, we're fighting a very powerful lobby. Um, so, you know, I, I don't have the answer, but I certainly agree with Ken that we, we if we can do something about it, we should.
1: Yeah, the key is the organization. And I think that's where a lot of these things that Dr. Milna talked about, that potential we have a lot of atoms spinning around is can we get them organized in terms of, because just as you'd mentioned, Dr. Hoffman, with the folks that you're hearing, the individual hearing that are not comfortable with it, wish it was different, wish we could do something. Um, you know, with these large groups and lobbies, it takes a large mass turn uh, in order to get that to push to say, it's not just one person. It's not just, and that's, and it's, it's the whole idea behind unions. The whole idea of the union is the individual doesn't count. It's, but when the individuals come together, the individual is powerful. And so that is, I think, hopefully where this ability to communicate and share and organize and get on the same page and in the same direction, it may make that that final little push that allows it to all fall over.
2: Ryan, do you know anyone in ASAP who's high up in ASAP?
1: I'd, I'd, well, as somebody who's still in the back row... Uh, <laughs>
0: Like, hey, just you're, on it, row. you're on the road you're on the road
1: i'm on the road and the good news is we're about to turn one so i get to at least move up one row so uh yeah and that's and that's exactly what, and that's one thing about this podcast and and role is to be able to get that voice put together and type and move things forward and to get these thoughts out there because that dr hoffman that email you sent to us you know i didn't feel it was even fair for just the six of us to to keep that, all that information, but to say, listen, everybody needs to see where this conversation is. And it's been an uphill fight. Dr. Hoffman's been pushing that rock like Sisyphus for 20 years for this. And it's at some point we have to look ourselves in the mirror and say, it's time. It's time. It's time for this to, to just to hit the, hit the reset button on, uh, on TPA for stroke. Amen. So any Ryan, closing? I think it
0: would be really good to get, you know, other people involved from an administrative and an official capacity. And so I'm glad you're bringing your voice to this through your front line and also potentially through your position within the organization. That's, so my comments about social media weren't uh, as a substitution for that, as a substitution for, you know, going through journals, write, you know, write letters to the editor if that's what you're good at. Um, do research if that's what you're good at. Uh, speak to the media if that's what you're good at. Um, I'm just using social media as another thing that can be done, and it's something that didn't, uh, that Jerry didn't have access to at the time to bring a community together quicker. I mean, we're all emergency physicians. We've all got short attention spans, but we do have to realize that sometimes we have to wait for everybody else to catch up to what we're thinking and the evidence we're reviewing, and that it does take years And Dr. Hoffman, Jerry published that reanalysis back in 2009, it's 11 years. And we know that it can take a very long time to change practice.
1: All right, I really appreciate it, and and I well, you may say that we have short attention spans, but I'm looking there at the background of Dr. Hoffman's uh, room that he's in, and that's a lot of books with a lot of attention. And actually, the last time we talked, Dr. Uh, Hoffman got me uh, turned uh, onto the book for opioids opioids called "Chasing the Screams" that I read and had read by uh, by the end of November uh, of of last year. And so, you know, I I appreciate that, and I honestly uh, couldn't ask for Two better human beings to share the podcast with me today, Dr. Milne and Dr. Hoffman. Uh, both of you, legends and and inspirations for me. Uh, and thankfully, with Dr. Milne, uh, very quick with the uh, uh, with the texting. So whenever I have a research based question, um, I can bounce that off him right away. And uh, Dr. Hoffman, for you know somebody who's only once a year really gets to talk with you at length it's it's always a pleasure and always a joy uh and as as i think i talked to you when uh we first talked for the first time at asap uh for the podcast um the, your your research uh, evidence breakdown sessions were the ones that i would skip out of everything else to go to so i really appreciate you both being with uh, with me today and sharing the information with our audience here on the front line
2: it's been a great pleasure ryan and ken as well uh, as always
0: Can I leave with one final thought, Ryan? And this is something that I think was involved in the original email chain. And it's something that's what we're doing right now. Jerry and I strongly both agree that we should try to use the term physical distancing, not social distancing. And we've gotten together today via electronic means. It is so great to see you again, Jerry, and be able to work with you. Ryan, it is always a pleasure. We are socially connected, despite the physical distance that we have to keep because of COVID-19. So thank you for contributing to my wellness by allowing me to socially connect with you, but staying safe by physically distancing. You're here.
1: And as, as for both of you, you know, it's it's getting to talk with you, getting to see you. Uh, And uh, people don't get to see the video aspect of things. You know, it's just the audio aspect. Uh, But, you know, while you guys were talking, I'm just sitting here doing a little dance in the background. I'm just so excited about a great conversation. You know, a little bit of disagreement, but honestly on the same page. And it's really the kind of dialogue that we need to see. The friendly uh, the, the friendly uh, banter, back and forth, and discussion, and ideas, and opening minds—that's honestly where we have to be, and that's what it's going to take moving forward. Because unfortunately, this time of year, uh, this time in our in our lives, and in our history, you know, there's not enough open minds and open ears. There is, there's just positions and anchors. And you can um, be,
0: you can be dis, you can disagree, Ryan, but you don't have to be disagreeable.
1: As and as always. <laughs> Without, I was going to say the same thing without fail. Uh, doc, Dr. Milne brings in the full Canadian and, and gives us the warm fuzzy. So we're going to leave with the warm fuzzy hug from Dr. Milne here on the front line. And uh, as for me, if you have any questions or comments, you know, contact me, youreverydaymedicine, gmail.com. That's youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com, at everydaymed uh, on Twitter. Dr. Milne uh, with his Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine podcast and dr hoffman a legend of emergency medicine who has been on dr milne's podcast for that in the past and i uh, appreciate it gentlemen have a great day
2: thank you ryan thank
1: you and until next time i'm dr ryan stanton stay well stay healthy stay safe and uh, let's continue to uh, make sure we're doing the best things we can do for our patients this has been some asap frontline. was beautiful. Good. Good, I loved it. I miss those
0: panel discussions where you, you parse out the nuances of different positions. I, it, it really forces me to think about things at a deeper level. And, you know, it's, it's always at the borders of my comfort zone that I really do pick up insight and ideas and learn and grow. So thank you, Jerry. Oh, you bet. It's a pleasure.